You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is August 13th, 2021. Uh, I'm Pete Betke. I'm the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where I'm also a university professor of economics and philosophy. And I am joined today by my good colleague, Dr. Rosalino Candela. Um, Rosalino and I have already recorded uh, discussions of Hayek on these podcasts, as well as another one on property rights and development. Um, but today we're going to touch on a wider set of issues addressing culture, language, history and ethics, as well as policy questions related to immigration, trade, uh, and entrepreneurial spirit. And so, Rosalino, first of all, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. It's a pleasure, Pete. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's get started. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, <laughs> small town, densely populated with strong ethnic identities uh, that permeated all the neighborhoods, the shopping areas, the, the schools and the churches. You grew up in New York City, uh, but also in a tight-knit Italian immigrant community. Uh, you grew up in a multilingual family, uh, right, in which, you know, languages uh, were being uh, spoken differently. Uh, can you discuss how growing up in that environment of a multilingual, multicultural influences formed your experiences first as a student, and then perhaps more importantly, just simply as an observer of human social interaction in all walks of life. Uh, you know, just, just the observational skill of growing up in a world where there's these intersections of these languages, culture, shared background understanding, conflict of visions. Go ahead. Yeah. So that's a, that's a very big question, Pete, and there are so many different angles at which I can tackle it. But let me start by giving a little bit more background uh, about myself. Uh, in order to answer that question, my upbringing was a bit unique compared to other Italian Americans in the sense that uh, most Italian Americans today are maybe third or fourth generation. Their relatives had come here in the early 20th century, right, pre World War One or around the World War One area, or prior to World War Two for that matter. Uh, my parents immigrated here, and were a part of a a small influx, not as large as the one I discussed, of uh, Italians from Southern Italy, particularly Sicily, in the 1970s and 80s. So my father uh, immigrated to New the New York City area in 1973 uh, after getting out of the army in Italy. Uh, he was drafted. There was a draft at the time. And my mom came in 1971. My dad is a barber by trade. He had been a barber since he was nine years old. He had, uh, as far as I know, uh, he didn't get past the third grade, right? So he went straight to work as a very young kid, you know, sweeping hair and learning the trade as an apprentice, right? That was his education, being an apprentice. And my mom went to work in the, in the garment district, in, the, in a textile factory mm -hmm. in, in New York. 
And so if, if for anyone watching, if they've seen Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, the depiction he gives about his mother working in the garment uh, industry, that's the uh, uh, atmosphere in which my mother was working. Now, this is very important in several respects for me because it's as if I was two, living two lives at the same time, one at home, which didn't feel like America at all. It felt like a, a transplantation of values and culture uh, that my parents had grown up with. And then my life at school and outside of the house uh, in the New York City area. What's particularly important about that is that because my parents clustered around a tight-knit community, uh, that was they were proud. Uh, they were proud to, to be Americans, to become Americans, but they also preserve their particular identity. And what was important about that is that it gave them time to adjust and assimilate into the area, to learn the English language and so on and so forth, right? So the fact that my mom doesn't work in a garment factory anymore, but that gave her, but being around other immigrants gave her time to adjust, to learn about the, the surroundings where she lives. Uh, and this is very, very important from a political political economy's perspective that there's, right, the world is not just divided up into markets and government. There's this independent sector of the economy, you might say, or another part of civil, civil society, of civil association that transcends interactions that are monetary on the market and those interactions that take place through government that are, that's just as important in facilitating social interaction. Now, it was that environment that I grew up in uh, that not only was I immersed in that community, but I was also very, very closely tied to uh, my extended family. So my grandparents live with us in my house. Uh, I have 27 first coven cousins who I all know by name, if you could imagine that, still very close with, many of whom live on this side of the Atlantic. And what's also important is that my father and my uncles, who I'm very close with, they came with trades, right? They came with particular trades and they all became small businessmen. Now, this is particularly important for living in the New York City area, because even though that they had strong, a strong self-identification, right, as coming from Italy, it's the fact that they engaged in commercial interaction and this cosmopolitan, the cosmopolitan nature of interaction in New York City illustrated to me a very, very important point is that the prerequisite of commerce is not the fact that individuals have to come to agree on living, abiding by practice of a particular religion or language or so on and so forth. These are all consequences, right, of interacting, of individuals across cultures, right, across different backgrounds, interacting with each other, right? That commerce has this effect of creating peaceful social interaction. Let me give, I'll give an example to illustrate this point. So as I said, at first my father worked for uh, a barbershop and then went to business on his own as a very small businessman. Now in the New York City area, there's also a very large Jewish population, right? And as a little boy, going to my father's shop, uh, one thing that I learned, there were two things I always remember, is that the overwhelming majority of my father's clients, right, were Jewish. 
And because of that, it facilitated toleration. At home, I always spoke to my dad in our dialect, right, from Sicily. But when we were there, he would say, no, 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 only English. Not in some sense of forced integration, but just this notion of toleration and being polite, mm-hmm. right, to other individuals. You want to be able to communicate and speak to others and not give the sense that you're talking behind their back, right? So he said, only English when we're here, right? The other thing that I also realized, and this is something that got me interested, it was, it was a seed that, that was planted in my, what later became my fascination with economics, were two things. Number one was, I was also uh, received uh, an education in parochial schools. I had a Roman Catholic education. But all of the money that my father received was an exchange of the services he provided, cutting hair, right, giving shaves and so on and so forth. And they were individuals who were not Roman Catholic. So there was an indirect effect in the sense that my father, in exchange for his services, obtained money that was utilized to provide me with an education in a parochial school. Now, what's interesting about that is that his clients may have not been practicing Roman Catholics. It didn't matter. The only margin in which they had to agree, and this is why commerce creates this peaceful social interaction amongst heterogeneous groups, is that the only margin they had to agree on is the price of the exchange itself. They could feel free to do what they want thereafter with the income that they've earned. And in in turn, right, my my father's clients could free up their time from cutting their hair or combing and doing whatnot to go about their business so that they could provide money to the synagogue and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's a great insight. Uh, Rosalino Candela updating uh, Voltaire uh, and explaining uh, these issues. But... um, uh, you know, it's uh, we chuckled on that, but actually the reality is, is that, again, you like humor a lot, uh, comedy and whatnot. And comedy is actually an observational force. Um, and, it, and comedy in particular is at the edge of a lot of these various different clashes that might exist between these different like worldviews. And yet it somehow mutes the differences by highlighting the differences in a weird way. Do you have any observations on that at all? Or No, absolutely. So um, there are two observations, one indirectly related, but also related to your point. My dad's an avid sports fan of American sports, but that's the margin, right? Since he didn't talk about politics or religion, what right. could he talk about as a barber? Yeah. He talked about sports, right? Right. That's one of the margins of that he learned, right? Right. This is how commerce also promotes toleration by finding <laughs> common ground on the margin. So he learned yeah, about- Let me just say something about the New York culture, which is fascinating because you grew up in uh, basically near the Mets, but your dad <laughs> is a Yankee person. 
And Yankee Jets fans. Because your dad likes the Yankees that he can talk to with his Midtown customers because his barbershop is in Midtown, not located in Queens. If he was had a barbershop in Queens, he probably couldn't have talked about the Yankees all that much and worried about Whitey Ford, right? He would have had to worry about the, you know, Tom Seaver and the and the Mets rather than the the great Yankees or whatever. But uh so that's an interesting thing. Your dad was was uh Kersnerian alert. Tom, what margins that the conversation could go. I can't explain why he likes the Jets. <laughs> that's a Queens thing. That's my next research project. <laughs> yeah, that's a good project. All right, so what was your second point? You were going to say a second observation about jokes. No, the, well, the, the other point that I wanted to make was uh, with regards to jokes, right? All of his jokes, all of his humor had to be tied, or, tied around not just sports or making jokes around like, oh, what a bum that that quarterback was and so on and so forth, or highlighting, right, some aspect of the way he's that, 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 that player was playing, right? If they were going to find something to talk about, where, as you said, that, that humor would come out the way that he would express humor, because, you know, my dad's yeah, from yeah. Italy, he's got his, right, his hands throwing around, he's very loud, right? But he's not going to say, make political statements or other statements that might be right potentially offensive right. he's going to tie everything around right making sports analogies yeah um okay so uh, following up on this a little bit more i mean because actually we could talk about your experience in the, in the restaurant industry as well for a similar kind of thing but um i've i've often argued um that there's a sort of intuition that we should all recognize um, that we have a universal model of human action um, because um, if we didn't have something universal between us, then when we looked out in the world and we saw these different languages and different cultures and everything like that, we couldn't understand. They would be just like Martians or whatever to each and every one of us. We couldn't, it's like trying to talk to a, um, you know, uh, a lion or something like that. Like we just couldn't couldn't have that communication. So there must be something common among all human beings that we can tap into. On the same time, though, there must be something very unique about the human experience and all this institutional diversity because we learn languages, we study history, we travel, we study geography, and, and there's something different about the terrain and the and the people and the different religions and everything like that. So there's this relation, interrelationship between the universal and the particular that gets played out all the time. And so I want to ask you a question about this with regard to economics. Um, so there's two aspects of this, which, which I want to sort of get you to, to comment on. One of them is just to reiterate to the listeners that you are a history major. So that emphasizes the particularities. You also, you know, got through on Italian language, right? So there, again, a, a particular aspect. So you have this. Um, but then you also studied philosophy, which is, is the, you know, the opposite, of the, the, the big questions kind of thing. So when you think about this play between the interrelationship between the universal principle and the particular experience, can you maybe give some ways in which you yourself negotiate that in your work, in your teaching, and in your research, I, I guess, is the basic line. Yeah, yeah sure. 
I would summarize the first point that you would make in the in the following way, Pete. There's both an art and a science to economics. The science of economics, the universal aspect to which you were talking about, is that individuals, all we simply mean is that individuals always and everywhere are trying to do the best they can, given their underlying circumstances, right? So that's the universal aspect of economics, right? The art of economics is to understand how individuals perceive, perceive is the key word here, and negotiate the trade-offs that they're trying to adjudicate in a particular time and place, right? And that the art of the economist, which is, right, this is the, 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 the universal aspect is pretty easy. It's pretty, it's quite intuitive, right? And I would say not that controversial, but it's this aspect of understanding the particular by stepping into the mind of individuals at a particular time and place and not imposing our own particular ends to understand is what's uh, makes e economics very counterintuitive. So in my own classroom, an example I give to illustrate this point, and it, and it, it, it and the, the particular reason why I illustrate this point is to highlight the humane aspect of economics, right? Not that human beings are just cold lightning calculators, and it transcends collectivistic uh, explanation based on race, creed, gender, and so on and so forth, is the following, right? So we've observed, Pete, that historically, individuals residing in medieval Europe, particularly individuals of Jewish heritage, right, residing in medieval Europe, were disproportionately underrepresented in agriculture. Now, we also observe the same phenomenon in Southeast Asia amongst ethnic Chinese who had been living in that area, right? In present day Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, who had lived there for centuries and were also disproportionately represented in agriculture and were, in terms of occupation, were relatively or disproportionately overrepresented in engaging in merchant activities, right? Now, what explains this, right? This, this aspect, how do we tie the universal and the particular? What makes them, what's the universal aspect? These are two groups of individuals who didn't have a shared cultural background, who didn't have a shared geographic background, right? But they're, they're human beings just like the rest of us, Pete. They're trying to do the best they can given their circumstance. But what is it that's particular about them that explains the same phenomenon? It's not as if something about the ethnic Chinese living in that area, right, maps onto, right, uh, European Jews living in medieval Europe. It's not an explanation based on race or based on creed, right? It's the fact that those particular ethnic groups in the areas that they resided experienced persecution, right? Now, if you're an individual like the rest of us, Pete, you're just trying to feed your family. You're trying to make a better life for yourself. What type of investments, what type of trades are you going to invest in? You're going to make in human, as economists referred to as human capital investments, relative or greater human capital investments relative to physical capital investments, right? You engaging in agriculture, Pete, 
you're making a lot of investments tied to a particular geographic area, tilling the soil, right? Planting crops, so on and so forth. That's all tied up with a particular political jurisdiction. If that political jurisdiction, right? If you as an individual feel as if, or you perceive, this, is the, this goes back to my particular, perceive that your property rights are not going to be respected once you've made those investments, you're going to engage in less of them than you otherwise would. So how are you going to negotiate the trade-off? Bargaining and negotiation activity, seeing profit opportunities to trade, right? But these are skills that reside in the human mind. They are relatively less costly to, trans to, to transport across political jurisdictions, right? This has nothing to do with the race or the creed of the particular individual. It's the institutional, right? With the variable that we concentrate on are the underlying institutions within which those two groups are residing in. That's the particular that political economists focus on, right? Now that's also tied up with other aspects such as culture, right? Which are the meanings and purposes attached to human action. How people perceive, right? And this is how culture gets tied up with property rights because property rights are nothing more than a set of social relationships, perceived social relationships about our ability to use, exclude and exchange resources. If you, if I am about to engage in an exchange with you, but I perceive that exchange, that the, that the outcome of that action is going to be negative zero sum or worse negative sum, I'm not gonna engage in that. So property rights won't be enforced. Yeah, so you have basically you have property rights giving you the uh, you know the particulars and relative prices giving you the the, the universal right. And so it's always this play between the setup of the property rights that people perceive are in operation and then the relative prices that they face in their economic decision making as a consequence of whatever that alternative institutional arrangement is set up. Exactly, Pete. So individuals always and everywhere are trying to do the best they can. They're going to negotiate costs and benefits. Those costs and benefits are going to, they're going to be guided in their negotiation through relative price movements. Those relative prices don't have to be necessarily monetary, but they are affected by property rights arrangements. Given that the cost of given that property rights are not well enforced in making physical capital investments, right? The, in the two minority groups that I just went over shifted their capital investments more, sword, more so towards human capital, where the cost of enforcing and securing those property rights are much lower. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people might uh, push back against this. But it's like when, when any of us in price theory now talk about uh, a shift in wage policies will lead to a substitution out of labor and into capital. And so you get kiosks at the checkout rather than getting uh, more workers at the checkout exactly. or, or you know, having innovations in restaurants where people don't, they go to the counter and they bust the table themselves rather than have a waiter or, uh, you know, because, again, the relative price 
you know, being operated and, and that's going to guide the decision making. Or, you know, a classic example is the difference between wages in Europe and wages in Asia after World War II and the type of ships. So do they build ships for shipping that are labor intensive or they build ships that are more capital intensive? And we're trying to see this or you're trying to see this in played out with regard to particular practices, like for example, what trades I go into, you know, whether or not I specialize in a trade that has fixed assets that can be confiscatable, or whether or not I in, invest in a trade that's movable, right? And I can, you know, you, your dad could be a barber anywhere in the world, right? He doesn't necessarily just have to be a barber in uh, southern Italy. He can, he can, that skill is trans, transportable. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, um, and his decisions are all going to turn on that. Uh, maybe it, it, you know, look, I'm, I'm leading you with a question here and maybe that's a, or maybe I'll just state it, but I remember you telling me once that your dad and mom were in Italy and they were coming back and they ran into some American tourists and the American tourists turned to them and said, oh, you know, Italy's so beautiful. How could have you ever left Italy? And your dad says, yes, Italy is beautiful, but you, you know, you have to eat or something like that. Right. And so it was the economic opportunities that were available to him in New York that were better than the opportunities offered to him in Italy that led him to move from one place to another at great cost to him. Right. Um, and we see that kind of pattern all over. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but maybe you just comment a little bit about you know, how you see immigration and migration patterns being driven by the very same logic you just talked about with regard to the uh, Chinese minorities or the, the uh, Jewish minorities in Europe, medieval Europe, or the, the, the ethnic Chinese minorities in Asia or whatever. Yeah. yeah. No, here's a very good example of this, Pete, um, that it's not that we need to be reminded of, it's not well known enough. The reality is, is that Argentina today is an economic basket case. But at the turn of the 20, at the 19th, right, early, the late 19th, early 20th century, it was the fourth largest economy in the world. And it's, right, it's economic potential was built on two things, right? One is that it did have a agricultural endowment. It had very fertile farmland right? Called the Pampas, right? If you, if many Argentines are very proud of this because they have very good steak there. But yeah. the also, but the other thing that, that um, generated the economic growth, this economic development in Argentina is that there was a massive migration of Italians, right? At that time, more so than in the United States, yeah. right? And also in other countries, for example, like Venezuela, right? right. So I, I, for example, I have cousins who they're they're raised in the United States but they happen to be they they happen to be born in Venezuela because the family moved there first because that's where they saw the economic opportunity before then moving to the United States when then economic opportunities in the in the more recent decades have dissipated in Venezuela right with the rise of Chavez and so, so on and so forth right so i mean and this illustrates an important point that the knowledge of, and I don't mean this in any pejorative way, the knowledge of common folk in their ability to vote with their feet is much more powerful 
than any individual economist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a that's a that's an important point for all of us to remember, I think, very strongly. Um, so Jim Buchanan, as you know, later on in his career, focused a lot of energy on this notion of the work ethic. Um, so it's a kind of a, 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 you know, he's famous for asymmetries and symmetry of behavior, and he wanted to have symmetrical behavior. And so, you know, that's the same people, different rules produce different outcomes, which is what we've been talking about at some level here. But then he introduces this notion of the work ethic. Um, and first of all, I was wondering if you could maybe first describe Buchanan's position and how it relates to his resurrecting of the notion of increasing returns, how that notion of increasing returns different from other people's notions of increasing returns. And, uh, you know, and then maybe, you know, uh, after you talk a little bit about the, the conceptual level to make it a little personal, which is, if you think about it, Buchanan worked his way through college. So his family, you know, uh, lost their resources and the ability to send him college. So he went to Middle Tennessee State Teachers College and he worked his way through college uh, working on a farm. Uh, but then he triple majored in college, English, math and economics. Um, so he himself had a notorious work ethic that, that carried through all of his way. Um, and I wanted to know, you know, what you thought about how your own experience growing up watching your family, your father, your uncles, your cousins, as you said, build businesses, uh, integrate into the U.S. economy, in, impacted your own understanding of the role of the work ethic along Buchanan-esque lines, um, because you yourself have a tremendous work ethic. Um, so, and, and, it, and, it, and it drives you. I mean, it's what it's what you know, makes you go in some sense. Nobody beats Buchanan that, on that margin. Yeah, I, I, I get that. But I mean, you, you have a very healthy work ethic yourself. So first the conceptual and then maybe a little bit of reflection on the impact that the, the witnessing of others might have had on you. All right. So let me, ex I'll explain what Buchanan means by the work ethic first, very simply, and then I'll get more technical. Um, Buchanan wrote, a very interesting book called Ethics and Economic Progress. It's a 1994 book. And what he talks about in the work ethic, he gives an example to illustrate this point, is that Buchanan, as you said, he was a workaholic, but he did enjoy watching football on Sundays. And he sat there one day and he, and he thought that he was engaging in activity that was unproductive, right? Because at the same time as he was watching the game, he could have been cracking walnuts. Right. So his intuition, what he's trying to say there is that holding all else all equal, if that we work more, you we're going to be better off. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's very simply what he's saying. By now, the way, can I interrupt a minute? Sorry. When I was his student, what he used to tell all of us was that professors were lazy. And if we just sat our, our uh, the consistent application of the seat of our pants to the seat of the chair from 6 a.m., to 6 p.m., six days a week, we would outproduce our colleagues, okay? And we could achieve things. The, the, the con game that he pulled was to convince us that that's what led to him. Whereas my other teachers were Gordon Tullock and Kenneth Boulding, and they seemed like what hit them was a lightning bolt. And then, you know, genius would come out. 
So Buchanan, it was about perseverance and effort. With them, it was all about inspiration and like, you know, so, you know, you could stumble around and wait for, you know, a lightning bolt to hit you and then, you know, come up with a brilliant idea. Or you could work really, really hard and then you could, you know, and I think the issue was is that, you know, Buchanan fooled us because, you know, the reality was is Buchanan was working with a bigger engine. So, yes, he worked from six to six, but he also worked with a much bigger engine. So his six to six was different than other people's six to six. So that's always been one of the things that I've tried to figure out with respect to the work ethic as well which is how do you play the different engine that people are playing with in all of this. So, but anyway, go, I, I apologize for interrupting, but yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I was going to tie to that point, but I'm glad that you raised it. So that in and of itself, I don't think explains the work ethic. What, what generates economic growth in Buchanan's mind with the work ethic is that there's this corollary that if we work more, then we'll save more. Right now, here's a way to, to, put this very, very simply. And something that I realized, so you said that to talk about it with my own experience. One of the uh, beauties of mathematics I realized very early on was the law of compounding returns, right? So I'll illustrate this point, right? As the rule of 72, the difference between, right? 7% and 8% is not 1%, Pete, right? So, for example, if you have an 8% return, you're going to double your money in nine years, right? If you have a 7% return, right, it'll be roughly 10% in, in 10 years, right? That yeah. 1% difference makes all the difference in the world, right? So that if we just work a little bit harder and then save and then invest, right, that will make that if we increase our savings rate through that, through that work, that's going to have a compounding effect that in the long run is going to make us all wealthier, right? So not only do we have to work more, but we also have to save more. Now, the way that this is interpreted, as you had said, in the profession today, the best way to illustrate this is to distinguish between increasing returns to scale and increasing returns to scope, right? Or the latter being what, what Adam Smith referred to as specialization under the division of labor, right? So let's tie this back to my, you know, my, my uncle and my father for that matter. I, I, now my uncle, he immigrated to the United States in 1964, right? Uh, he, he ran a very successful business making custom cabinets in New York. Now, prior to uh, immigrating to the United States, he first worked in Switzerland, but he worked in the German part of Switzerland. So he was convinced that it was the German work ethic. He was used to tell me, you know, Rosalino, these Germans, you know why they're wealthy and prosperous? Because they work hard, right? So for him, it was all about the work ethic. And I tried to convince all the time my uncle, well, maybe they have the right institutional, and I'll get to this in a moment. Maybe they have the right institutions. You know, there was Ludwig Erhard. He abolished price controls, right? How do we expect, if it's work ethic, how do we explain the difference between the performance at East and West Germany? Well, he would say, the East Germans don't work as hard. Well, I, that doesn't sound very convincing. And it doesn't sound convincing when you apply it to the same group of people. So my family, I have uncles and cousins and so on and so forth. They live in Southern Italy today. They work very hard. 
they're not lazy by any means, but yet they 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 enjoy a lower standard of living than my relatives do in the United States. It's not explained by the fact that they don't work as hard or not as motivated to save as much, right? Furthermore, right now, how does this tie to the increasing material returns to scale point, right? The I know the, the notion is is that if you double the amount of effort, right, in a particular activity, you're going to double the amount of value of output. Now, my dad can only cut so many hair, only heads in a, in a day, and only so quickly. So, given the the scarce amount of time, right, what would happen? Right, eventually there would be diminishing returns. Yeah. Right. My dad would exhaust himself. So what explains the fact that my dad, by the way, my dad doesn't use a computer. He hasn't updated in terms of his technological savviness. He just cuts hair the same way with a straight razor. His technology, you may say, hasn't changed for 40 years. But it's the fact that he operates in a thicker market. The fact that the division of labor in New York City bids up the demand for his services is what allows him which increases the value of his service, right? And therefore, that's why his income as a barber is higher relative to the one that he could enjoy in Sicily. It's the fact that he operates in an an area with a thicker market, right? But because of that thicker market, Pete, he has also been able to deploy his income in saving and investing and so on and so forth. This is all generated because of secure property rights that we enjoy in the United States. So to Buchanan's point, Buchanan is not wrong, but what I would add to Buchanan is that increases in, in, in our labor effort, increases in capital, though they require labor effort, they're more so byproducts, right, of the institutional environment in which we operate in. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.